Well, every one of us, regardless of what campus we are in, we have a lot of stuff going on in our lives. We have some things that are going on, and they are great things, and at the end of those days, we say, this was one of the best days I've ever had. We have some things going on in our life, and at the end of those days, we say what? I'm glad that day is over. We all have a lot of things going on, and if we were to chart our lives, we'd have some ups, we'd have some downs all the way through. We are not immune to any of these, and we are not immune to how they impact us, because as human beings, these things will impact us. But what if, what if we were not so impacted by the events of our life, what if we were more impacted, we were more driven, we were more controlled by something within. What if through these challenging times we could kind of sail through the middle and regardless of our best day ever or our worst day ever, we could have this inner contentment, <clears throat> this inner joy, this inner happiness that trumped any high or any low. As a believer, what would it look like? Get a new screen here. When we come to Christ, and here we go, and we are home in heaven, and we have the same thing as a believer. We have these challenges. Coming to Christ does not exempt us from the challenges of life. And so here's what our Christian life looks like. Now, we have some progress along the way, but here are the challenges. So what if in the Christian life these highs were higher and these lows were not as low. I know last week I said, what if the highs were higher and the lows were lower? I didn't mean that. I meant to say, what if the highs were higher and the lows were less low? What if the trajectory looked more like this? What if in the midst of it all, there was a joy, a peace, a confidence that came from within? How do we get that? How do we achieve that? How do we access that? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, let me set the context. Jesus has started his ministry publicly, baptized here in the Jordan River, over here, 40 days tempted by Satan, and then he goes right up to Galilee, the area he ministered in for two years of his three-year ministry, set his uh, headquarters right there in Capernaum. And Jesus hit the ground running as we saw last time, chapter 4, verse 23, he went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread not only in Israel, but in the northern area, the northern country, Syria. All people were brought to him with, who were ill with various diseases, suffering severe pain, demon-possessed, those having seizures and paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan started to follow him. So as they are following him in chapter 5, Jesus saw the crowds. He goes up to a mountainside, again, not a sheer mountainside, but the, heel, the rolling hills around uh, Galilee. And Luke says he goes to a flat place, and there Jesus begins to teach. 
And that teaching is found in that first sermon he uh, preaches is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, a lot of commentators think it's the very first sermon that Jesus preached. For sure, it's a sermon that sets the tone. The people coming to Jesus during that time wanted to know if he was for real or not. They heard about his healings. They heard about the fact that he could take a, speak a demon out of a demon-possessed man. They knew that he taught with authority, and they're coming to Jesus to see if maybe, just maybe, he is the one they've been waiting for. He is the anointed one. In Hebrew, he is the Messiah. In Greek, he is the Christ. And if he is the Messiah, if he is the Christ, if he is the one they've been waiting for, then how in the world do you follow him? What does it take? What's the entry fee? How do you qualify to follow Jesus and be part of his group? Now, the people to this point only knew of the standards set by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of their day. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were, the entry fee was loaded with the law. The Pharisees took the law of Moses in the Old Testament and added 248 commands and 600 or 365 prohibitions to the law. Jesus would later say, you have, you have just loaded people down with the law. And so the sermon that Jesus preaches says it's going to be different. The entrance into my kingdom is different. It's not different in the sense that it's different from the Old Testament because we're going to see through the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus takes a lot of the Old Testament teaching and just re-ups it to the new. This is what it looks like in the new kingdom. But he reestablishes what it looks like to follow him. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is going to talk about conduct. Here are the things you do. But before he ever gets to conduct, he talks about character. Not what you do first, it's who you are first. And then that, what you do flows from that. Character produces conduct. Conduct flows from character. So Jesus starts his sermon with this counterintuitive, this counterculture, upside down truths called the Beatitudes. The Beatitude, the Latin word that means blessed. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons or children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, blessed. Blessed, blessed. It's amazing, isn't it, that Jesus says the entrance into my kingdom. When you go into my kingdom, here's what I want you to feel. Here's what I want you to be. He uses this word blessed, and it means happy. I want you to be happy. It's the Greek word that we translate happy. Here's what I want you to be in my kingdom. Happy, content, joy, regardless of the circumstance. Now, to be sure, Jesus is not talking about the happiness that we're familiar with in our world. He's not talking about the world's version of happiness. The world's version of happiness is always external. So we had a lot of people at the last night's service, Saturday night service, who are running the marathon today. 
and some of those are going to be very happy if they get a certain time. I'm already getting some texts from them telling me how they're doing on their route. So when they get a certain time, that makes us happy. As we talked about last time, we have those in Washington uh, who are going through some, some, some recovery time, and they can say, I've been 70, I've been 80, I've been 90 days clean. That makes me happy, and that is a great thing. All those things from the outside are good, cool things, right? But that's the world's version of happiness. Jesus says, i got a happiness that comes from within. I got a happiness that, that is there regardless of what you're going through. I got a happiness that's there regardless of whether you're facing surgery this week or not, whether you're going through treatment or not. I got a happiness that's there regardless of what your marriage looks like right now. I got a happiness of, that's there and can stay there and be contented no matter what you're going through uh, with your kids, no matter how much pressure you have right now going through your college finals. I got a peace, I got a satisfaction, I got a joy, a contentment that resides within. It is an inward, inner state. It is protected from circumstances. It describes kind of a stain-resistant fabric over the covering of the soul. Now, here's a question. How can we know that we have this internal happiness versus the world's happiness? How can we know we have Jesus' version of happiness rather than the world's happiness? Because some of you may be going through a great time right now, and you say, man, life is never better. How do you know that's not the world's happiness versus what Christ can give you? Two, two criteria. Number one, the happiness that Jesus offers quiets the heart in the middle of the storm. So you can be going through some challenging times. Life can kind of be falling off the rails, as it were. And you can still, in those challenging times, again, not immune to some of the difficulties, not immune to some of the emotion of challenging times, but you can say in the midst of that, in the midst of that, there's still this contentment. There's still this peace. That's when we know it's coming from Jesus, not from the world. Here's the second criteria. The happiness that Jesus offers never fades. In fact, it just gets better and better. More contentment, more joy. External stuff comes and goes. So things we get that make us happy, they wear out. The new car smell. Don't you love the new car smell? It disappears, particularly when you find a month-old Happy Meal underneath the seat. <laughs> but, but the internal blessings, the internal happiness never fades. Philippians chapter 4, don't be anxious for anything, but in every situation by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, the happiness of God, the joy, the contentment, the blessing, which transcends all understanding. It's upside down. It doesn't make sense. You can be going through a terrible time, and here's this peace. You can be going through a challenging time, and here's this peace. It transcends all human understanding. And that's the peace that God gives that will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. So Jesus begins this, this new teaching. Here's how you follow me. Here's what it looks like. Here's the entry fee. Here's how you enter into this kingdom. And he starts in chapter 5, verse 3, by saying this, blessed are the what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's where Jesus starts with blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, there are three words, Greek words, that are translated poor. Two of the words are very similar, and they describe someone that is in poverty. They describe someone going through a challenging time. They're in poverty. So when we go over to the Mathari slums in Nairobi, uh, they bring these buses up called matatus, and these buses come up, and guys will go to those buses and just pack on the buses these little little buses, sometimes are hanging off the side, and they'll take them out to a construction site or someplace to work, and they'll make a day's wage, and then they'll come back hanging on to those buses, and they'll go to the little marketplace, and they'll buy food for that day. That's poverty. <clears throat> They're living in poverty. They have food for that day. The, the poorness that Jesus is talking about here is a different word, and it gets even lower than that. It's a word that means cringe or crouch. It gives the idea of utter destitution. In Luke chapter 16, the same word is used to describe a man who is a, who is a beggar. He, he can't get on the bus and go make a day's wage. He's blind. He's paralyzed. He's helpless. He can't lift a finger to help himself. That's what Jesus is talking about in chapter 5, verse 3. One who is unable to provide for himself. One who is totally dependent on others. One who is destitute. One who is impoverished. One who is helpless. One who is hopeless. And notice what Jesus does. He takes this physical picture of a beggar, the lowest of the low, and he puts it in the spiritual realm. Blessed are the beggars in spirit. Blessed are spiritual beggars. And then he changes it and he turns it upside down for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we want to make sure that we understand what Jesus is saying when he says that we are to be a spiritual beggar, or we are to realize that we're spiritual beggars. First of all, it has nothing to do with oppression. There's a lot of stuff going on in our world today. I mean, just turn on the news. Ethnic cleansing going on, Christians being persecuted around the world, a lot of bad stuff going on. That is tragic. That is not what Jesus is talking about in chapter 5, verse 3. This verse has nothing to do with personality, someone who is humble, someone who is unassuming, someone who always puts others before themselves. That's a noble trait, but it has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about in chapter 5, verse 3. This verse has absolutely nothing to do with economics. It doesn't matter how much you make or how much you don't make. It doesn't matter if you're in poverty or not. How many of you have heard of uh, Francis of Assisi? Heard of him? He he prayed that prayer that may be on your wall someplace. Grant me, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. 
And Francis started out as a very, very wealthy individual. He was a young man, extremely wealthy, extremely popular in his day. And, um, and he had this dramatic conversion and he wanted to demonstrate it. And so he went out and he changed clothes with a beggar. And he kissed the hand of a leper. You don't do those types of things. And then he went and he took some of his father's business. Again, he was a wealthy uh, family. And he sold his father's business to rebuild the church. And his dad was so irritated and enraged, he took him before the court of bishops to try to get some of the money back. And there, right there and then, uh, Francis renounced his inheritance. He stripped off his clothes and, and he moved away, showing his total devotion to God. He spent the next several years of his life living as a hermit in the vicinity of Assisi, which is a, a little town in central Italy. He, he became very suspicious with any type of organized or formal learning. He took a vow of poverty. He was going to live his life as a hermit with no money. In fact, he even avoided touching money. He said money is evil, not even going to touch it. And today there is an order of clergy called the Franciscan monks who take the vow of poverty. That's not what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, verse 3. Some will say that. He's talking about taking a vow of poverty. Not what he is saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this, this thing has nothing to do with your body. It has everything to do with your heart. Spiritual beggars are those who come to the place in their life where they realize their desperate state. Their pride is stripped away. They look inside and see no goodness in them. They have nothing to offer God. There is no way they can earn a position with God. <clears throat> they may have been a self-confident individual, but they realize their self-confidence does them no good before God. They might have been a self-assured individual, but they realize their self-assurance does them no good before God. They may be a person who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and started a business and did great things from a human standpoint, but they, they realize their worth, work ethic and their inner strength that has nothing, means nothing, when it comes to relationship to God. So a spiritual beggar comes to the point in his or her life where he realizes, I got nothing to bring to the table. And you want to know why many people don't trust in Christ? Because they can't get to that point. Don't ever believe someone doesn't trust in Christ because they just can't figure out the origins of the universe. Don't believe someone doesn't trust in Christ because there's some apologetical issue. If they got one more book to read on it, then they'd finally understand it. Then they would trust in Christ. That's not the issue. Do we as humans think we are going to fully, un finite humans don't even know what we're going to have for lunch today? Maybe. Do we think we're going to figure out the eternal God? Pride is the issue. And there are so many people who cannot come to the point to say, I'm a spiritual beggar. I got nothing to offer God. There are a lot of people who think, man, God would be very fortunate to have me on his team. 
But a spiritual beggar says, man, I have nothing. I am destitute. Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea, the book of Revelation. And he says, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. A lot of people like that, right? I got it all. Man, I, I, got a, I got a full refrigerator. I got a house to live in. I got a bank. I got it all. I don't need a thing. But Jesus says, what you don't realize is you're a spiritual beggar. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's where the Christian life starts. We call this doctrine total depravity. It means this, there is no part of me left untouched by sin. Started in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall. My mind and will are tainted by sin. Even my body is under the penalty of sin. It's in the process of dying. Genesis chapter 8, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God on his or her own. Mark chapter 7, Jesus says this, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. We have absolutely nothing to bring to the table. And that's the place where Jesus wants us to start. Because when we get to that point, then we realize we have to trust in Him alone. We realize we can't earn our way to Him. We realize we can't earn a spot in heaven. We realize that we can't even, as I talked to one guy after the first service, man, his resume was like this. But he said, I'm struggling within. My heart's empty. So you may climb that big ladder to success and realize when you get there, I'm empty inside. I'm still as much a spiritual beggar as when I was on the first rung. Now, normally, normally, I feel sorry for beggars, right? Don't you? You're driving downtown Pittsburgh, and you see someone standing there by the, by the tubes, or the tunnel, or the bridge. Sometimes in downtown Washington, out by the airport, certainly in Wilkinsburg. Someone is holding a cup. Normally, I feel sorry for beggars. But look what Jesus does. He takes that and he turns it upside down. He says, blessed are you who realize you're a spiritual beggar. For yours, it's only the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who come to the point when you realize you have nothing to offer. You turn to Jesus Christ as the one who paid the penalty for your sin. You come to Jesus Christ as the only one who can place you in a relationship with the living God. You come to Jesus Christ not as one way or a good way, but the only way you can have a relationship with God. You come to Jesus Christ to fill the emptiness inside. You are 
helpless. You are hopeless. You are only dependent on God. You have nothing to bring to the table, but Jesus has done it all for you. Jesus says, blessed are you when you get to that point. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven right now because Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, takes up residence in anyone who will trust in him alone as a way for salvation. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is that place where he reigns. And right now, he reigns within you. One day, he's going to return or we're going to go see him in death. And we will reign in the eternal kingdom forever and ever. But right now, the kingdom of God lives within you. Think of that. Think of the power of that. When we come to the point when we realize we have nothing to offer, that's when Jesus gives us everything we need in eternity as well. Think of the truth in that. Think of the power in that. When we come to the point where we realize we're spiritual beggars and we say, I come to you with nothing to offer, Jesus says, you can have it all. You can have the kingdom of God. You can have this happiness inside. You can have this peace inside. You can have this joy inside that is not dependent on a good day or a bad day. It comes from within. You can be protected from those things without because from within you, I will give you everything you need every day you live. So here's the most important question. Here's why Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with this. Have you come to that point? Have you come to the point where you realize you are a spiritual beggar? You have nothing to offer. And have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God? Until you do that, you will never have peace. You will never have happiness. You will never have the joy that can come from Jesus Christ. But when you do, You'll have everything you need to do everything God's calling you to do. Now, one more thing. I believe that a lot of Christians treat Jesus as a doorkeeper. What I mean by that is they say, yeah, I got it. Spiritual beggar. I get it. Can't do anything for my own salvation. And so, Jesus, I'm trusting in you as the way to let me in. And then Jesus opens the door, and we walk into the kingdom. And then we kind of leave him there by the door because he's just the doorkeeper, right? And then we go on living the kingdom, or we think we're living the kingdom life, and we leave him behind. A lot of Christians like that. I'm a spiritual beggar to get in, but now I'm in. I'm back to that, oh, I'm glad. you got to be glad I'm here. Look at my gifts. Look at all I have to offer. You hear people like, man, I, I think I want to become a Christian because I've got a lot to offer God. <laughs> you have anything to offer God. <laughs> Nothing. You don't have anything to offer God the second you trust in Him. You don't have anything to offer God the 10 years after you trust Him. You don't have anything to offer God 20 years after you trust in him. You continue to be a spiritual beggar and continue to be dependent on him. And that's where our spiritual identity really comes. See, if I think I have something to offer, then it's got to be looking at me. My gifts, my status, my money that I'm giving, 
And so my identity is not in Christ, but it's in me. But when we live as a spiritual beggar, when we are willing to look at ourselves in the mirror every day and say, you are a spiritual beggar. God, I need you today. I need you for my significance. Because in and of myself, I have nothing to bring. I need you for my security. I need you for my accept. I want to be, I want to know today I'm accepted as your child. I need you for forgiveness because I sure can't forgive myself and I'm going to mess up a lot. I need you to empower me. I am incapable of doing what I need to do today. That's where our spiritual identity comes. Remember, we call that safe with two S's, significance, security, acceptance, forgiveness, empowerment, until we get to the point where we realize that we are a spiritual beggar every day of our lives. We will never learn the true identity that Jesus wants to give us. Our significance, our security, our acceptance, forgiveness, and empowerment are found only in Jesus. From day one to our last breath. We are safe in Him, and that never stops. And the Beatitudes describe the the person of the kingdom. The Beatitudes describe the character of a person who not only comes to Christ, but lives for Jesus Christ every day of their life. And the moment I start thinking, I don't need Jesus, is the day my life goes off the rails. And that can be in your 20th year, your 30th year, your 50th year of following Christ. The day I say I am no longer a spiritual beggar, I can handle this on my own, it's when it goes off the rails. David prayed in Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 40, but as for me, and King David, right? King David, but as for me, I am poor and needy. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. My God, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. Take, take your Bibles as we wrap this up and turn to Philippians, <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4. Actually, Philippians chapter 3. So Paul is telling the Philippians here, you're believers, he's speaking, he's writing to believers, but don't get too full of yourselves. Don't think because you know some theology that all of a sudden you've arrived. Don't think because you have some gifts you've arrived. Don't think because you're active in the church you've arrived. You always have to realize that you are a spiritual beggar. Paul says, if anyone thinks he has a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. You want to have some competition here, Paul says? If you think, if you, think you have something to offer God, I got more. He says, I was uh, circumcised <clears throat> on the eighth day. People of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church for legalistic righteousness, faultless. I kept the law to the letter. Then Paul says this, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss 
to, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. You see, it wasn't just when I trusted in Christ. Now I consider that still a loss to the, to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost everything. Skip down to verse 12. Paul says, <clears throat> not that I've obtained all this or that I've already been made perfect, but I what? I press on, realizing I have nothing to offer. It's all by Christ. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I love that verse. I press on to grab or grasp that very thing for which Christ grabbed me to do. And Paul says, brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I'm not there yet. I've not arrived. But one thing I do, I forget what's behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize to which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I press on realizing that it is only by the strength of God. It is only by the strength of Jesus Christ that I can do anything remotely pleasing to him. I was a spiritual beggar. I am saved by grace. And it's only through realizing that I have nothing to offer. My strength comes from him alone. That I can live a life pleasing to him. And I think that's why so many Christians have trouble with the Christian life. They think Jesus is the doorkeeper. He got me in and now I'm kind of on my own. Every day. I am a spiritual beggar. How many of you have heard of uh, Oswald Chambers? Anybody? <clears throat> he was a pastor, late 1800s, early 1900s, and he's best known for um, a devotional book he wrote uh, called My Utmost for His Highest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell this story. I'm going to have Susie and, and uh, Ross come and, and, play, and uh, get ready for the last song. Um, his biography is called Abandoned to God, and I encourage you to read tremendous biography. And in the book, the writer talks about a period of time in Chambers' life when he went through some deep spiritual struggles, about a four-year period of time. During that time, uh, Chambers would travel around to different churches, and during that time, a young woman in a church accused him of misconduct with her. There was no truth to the accusation. There was a thorough investigation, and he was vindicated. But still, the word was out. So he was shunned, and uh, he was the object of gossip. But Chambers said the shunning and the gossip didn't bother him as much as the fact that there was a heightened awareness in his heart. Ch Chambers said he had once heard a preacher say, what any human being has done, any other human being is capable of doing. And, and Chambers had not sinned sexually with this woman, but in his heart, he knew he could have. And the realization was almost more than he could bear. It took him to a new level of spiritual depth when he realized that even after serving God in this way, he's still a spiritual beggar. Listen to what his biographer wrote. Chambers became aware of an abhorrent dualism in his personality. The sham and hypocrisy he detested in others had a foothold in his own heart. 
He, he could proclaim that God must be given glory for all his good works, but he, Chambers, enjoyed the praise of men. While many people thought he was a near-perfect saint, he knew the truth about himself. Within him lurked a frightening pride that was beyond his power to conquer. Oswald Chambers, you hear what he's saying? That incident caused him to realize he was a spiritual beggar. That there was this pride in his heart that was beyond his power to conquer. He didn't have any control over it. He was dependent every day for God, not just for salvation, but for the whole process of growing and knowing Christ more intimately and deeper and living a life of obedience. He was dependent on Jesus every day. And we have to do that as well. Blessed are those who come to the point where they realize they are a spiritual beggar, not just at salvation, but every day of their life. And then Jesus gives the promise. What is it? You got the best life ever. For yours is the kingdom of heaven.